Hello, my name is Katherine Troyer. Thank you for joining us for The Bleeder Boards, your audio recaps of the play-by-plays and battle outcomes. Today, we're talking about what happened in the May 10, 2022 battles. Our first battle features Mary Barrett from Paul Tremblay's 2015 novel, A Head Full of Ghosts. The number three seed in the final girl's bracket, she has an important message to share. See The Last Exorcism, but don't see its dumbass ending. Mary is facing off against number 14 seed Angela Vidal from the 2007 Spanish film Wreck. Angela's last report, as you may remember, didn't go very well, and she is eager for an interview with Mary, so she takes a moment to get psyched up with her fight song, Run Boy Run by Woodkid. Angela wants the truth, capital T, no matter what. But Mary's entire life has taught her that truth is in the eye of the beholder. In an essay entitled Horror After Theory, which looks at horror in 21st century novels, author Lyle Enright argues that in Tremblay's novel, Mary is an unreliable narrator. He explains, Mary's self-consciousness regarding her fragile memory produces additional anxiety as she reflects on Marjorie's slow descent into cruelty and madness. Unsurprisingly, then, the interview between Mary and Angela starts off on a rocky note. But Angela is tenacious. She wants to know exactly what happened in Mary's life, and she believes that a reporter has the right to push herself into every nook and cranny. Tell me about Marjorie. What really happened that night, she asks, camera recording. Mary starts to answer and then trails off mid-thought. Angela's interviewer instincts sense that there is a story in that silence, and she isn't wrong. Mary remembers everything and nothing. She seeks solace in horror, but she also knows the genre has sharp edges that can cut deep. Her fight song, Jay-Z's Young Forever, comes on the radio. And with that, she makes a decision. The interview is over. Angela does not accept this decision gracefully. She argues, she screams, but Mary insists. And before she knows it, Angela is sitting back in her car with nothing to show for her afternoon. She heads first to the bar and then to her apartment. That night, Angela hears a strange sound coming from her living room. Of course, she goes and investigates. What she finds will haunt her for the rest of her life, her very short life. She tries to flee. The next day, the police find what's left of Angela. By default, Mary wins. But the real question is, what exactly happened to Angela? Was it Mary? Or was it someone or something else? I guess it depends on your answers and your feelings about how Tremblay's novel, A Head Full of Ghosts, ends. The next battle is between Ash Williams and the number four seed from Evil Dead 2. Well, wait a minute. You may be wondering, aren't we in the final girls bracket? First Pam Voorhees and now Ash. You might be wondering whether we've even seen some of these movies. But many of the scholars in Ron Rikiki's edited collection, The Many Lives of the Evil Dead, examine Ash through the framework of the final girl. Some like Dale Bailey in his essay, Final Girl, Final Boy, Ash's Imperiled Masculinity argue that Ash can be read as a final guy because Raimi's films explore what, quote, masculinity means. Bailey argues that the first Evil Dead, quote, subverts the slasher formula by feminizing its final boy and making his feminine sentimentality, his urge to preserve the symbol of his love with Linda, the vehicle of his ultimate salvation. Alex Liddell, also in The Many Lives of the Evil Dead, argues the opposite. In their essay, Ash vs. the Cult of Personality, they suggest that it is only, quote, 
through replacing his chivalry with cold, ferocious pragmatism that Ash survives, end quote. And this is presented, Liddell says, as hyper-masculine behavior. So it's complicated. And the fact that this is Ash from Evil Dead 2, and not all the other versions of Ash, also makes it tricky to clarify exactly whether Ash is a final guy or the antithesis of a final girl. Either way, if there is killing to be done, Ash will be there. Ash listens to his fight song, Wild Thing, by the Trogs, and prepares his shotgun and chainsaw. He's heard that there is a demon masquerading in the form of a very pretty girl. He knows exactly how to handle that type of monster. That pretty girl? It's Needy Lesnicki, number 14 seed from the 2009 film Jennifer's Body. Her fight song, You're My Best Friend by Queen, is fierce, and she herself is a bit terrifying. To quote the movie, no, I mean she's actually evil, not high school evil. Ash has changed greatly over his decades of existence in movies, TV shows, and now a game coming out this Friday the 13th. But one thing has remained fairly consistent. He considers himself to be a real ladies' man. But, even though he finds Needy rather beautiful, he still knows what he has to do. He has to be the hero. He fires his shotgun, straight into Needy's gut. He goes up to Needy, who's curled up in the fetal position. He raises his change shot for the final blow when she looks up at him, and he hesitates, just for a second. But it's long enough for Needy to win, and she does. And so, Needy wins the battle, but she is majorly injured. This injury will carry over into her future battles. Shifting to the Stephen King bracket, the next battle is Brady Hartsfield in the number three seed from the 2014 novel Mr. Mercedes. It should come as no shock that his fight song is about a Benz. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz by Goose, Goose Creek Symphony. After a successful season of killing, he's decided to take a mini vacay. But he's not interested in sand and sun. Nope, the spooky dark Overlook Hotel is his number one choice. It's exactly what Brady wanted. Everybody leaves him alone. Everyone except for the one man who says he's the caretaker. That's right, it's Jack Torrance, number 14 seed, from the 1980 film The Shining. You might be surprised to see Jack in such a low spot in the bracket. But remember, in Kubrick's film, Jack only scores one kill. He's a bit too distracted to finish off his family. But even with his lower-seeded position, Jack is still creepy. And even a psychopath like Brady knows something is wrong. Brady decides to follow Jack and notices that for a caretaker who, quote, has always been the caretaker, Jack doesn't seem to be doing much caretaking. He just seems to wander around, whistle his theme song, Queen's Under Pressure, and talk to people Brady can't see. Brady learns that there is more to the Overlook than the brochures say. In fact, in an article on Senses of Cinema, examining a dramaturgical analysis of The Shining, there's a specific section written about Kubrick's vision of the hotel. The authors explain that in the film, quote, the overlook was built on a Native American burial ground, and Native American motifs have been absorbed in the hotel. This suggests that the overlook and its ghosts are symbols of archetypal and sympaternal psychosocial issues. At the same time, the authors point out, the film is full of references to myths, fables, and horror literature. The hotel, a haunted house of sorts, seems like a ghost ship to Wendy, who says, I feel like I have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs every time I come in. Brady is not used to being creeped out. He's used to doing the creeping. So he decides he's going to leave. There's just one obstacle in his way, literally. 
Jack is hacking down his door with an axe. Jack's yelling that there's always been a Brady at the hotel, but Brady is pretty sure he does not want to stay there any longer. Normally, he prefers to have his minions exact his violence, but needs must. Just as Jack breaks through the door, Brady shoots him right in the forehead. It is a cold and brutal death, but Jack's used to that, which perfectly matches our winner, Brady Hartsfield. He hopes that the next battle will involve more bins. Our next battle has our first, but not last, vehicular contestant, the Happy Toys Truck, seated in the number four spot from the 1986 film Maximum Overdrive. Happy, as we'll call the truck, loves long drives, running people over, and burying Rascal Flats. It's no surprise then that Happy's fight song is Life is a Highway by Rascal Flats. Happy decides to take a scenic detour through the quaint town of Derry. In the middle of the road is Henry Bowers, the number 13 seed, from King's 1986 novel It. Henry sways, switchblade in hand, to his fight song, Little Crazy by Fight. One of the penalties for the Stephen King bracket is the length of the, of the text. King's books are often long, but It clocks in at nearly 1,200 pages. So Bowers, as a contestant, is handicapped in this fight by the length of his novel. But he's also affected by his very broken psyche. While it could be trimmed, the group sex scene, for example, can definitely go, the novel has the space to really dig into the psycho psychological trauma of its characters, even its bullies. Henry is abused, manipulated, and broken the ways that the films cannot show. It's not surprising then that when Henry sees a green goblin truck barreling down on him, he's not sure whether he's seen something real or just in his head. After all, Derry does have a cosmic space side spider masquerading as a dancing clown. But as Patrick Cotter argues in their screen rant piece, it bully Henry Bowers was even more sadistic in the book. Quote, Henry Bowers is a character with a sad backstory, but Stephen King still made him one of his most unsettling human villains. Henry snaps open his switchblade and glares at the truck. Happy speeds up. You can probably predict the outcome of this battle. Happy drives straight into and through Henry. Exiting the town of Derry, its green face now red, Happy Toy's truck is the undisputed winner. We move to the monster cruise battle between the ghosts from the 2001 film 13 Ghosts, the number three seed, versus the strangers from the 28th film, The Strangers, in the 14th seed. The ghosts are home, which is all the reason the strangers need for their violence. Quote, It's comforting to believe that you need to wrong someone in order to become their enemy, but the reality, as is terrifyingly on display in The Strangers, is that your peaceful existence can be shattered simply because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That quote from John Squires in his 2020 Bloody Disgusting article, Because You Were Home, the terrifying pointlessness of the strangers, articulates part of what makes the strangers so frightening, the total lack of reason behind the violence. Philip L. Simpson argues in his essay, There's Blood on the Walls, Serial Killing as Post-9-11 Terror in the Strangers, that this aspect of the film reflects its post-9-11 heritage. Simpson argues that while the film offers, quote, a deep sense of fear about the murderous potential of the aggrieved rural or other, end quote, presented in so much 1970s horror, it's also a film deeply affected by post-September 9-11 American fears. Specifically, the film presents a homeland invasion story where no hope is left, no values remain intact to cling to, 
no redemption is possible. For more on the 9-11 impact on the horror genre, check out Kevin J. Wetmore's Post-9-11 Horror in American Cinema. But for ghosts, particularly murderous evil ghosts, there's already no hope left, no values remaining, no redemption possible. The strangers enter the house to the fight song Iron Maidens Don't Look to the Eyes of a Stranger, excited for a night of killing. And indeed, they aren't wrong about that part. Bodies will be on the floor before the evening is through. Each of the 13 ghosts gets in on the fun. Well, except for the torso, who can't really do much. But the others definitely get in on the fun. The firstborn son lures the blonde stranger upstairs, where the angry princess and the bound woman fill the tub with her blood. The dark-haired female stranger is attacked by the great child, the dire mother, and the torn prince, as they, in a perverted sense of hospitality, first stuff her with food and then rip her apart. The male stranger lurks in the background and sees his companions being brutally murdered. When the ghosts come for him, he proposes joining their ranks. But there is no rationalizing with the remaining ghosts, particularly not the jackal. And so, the ghosts rip him into pieces and tear him into bits. The ghosts win this battle. And with these three deaths, their power only grows. Their fight song, Can't Hold Us, by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, reverberates throughout the glass house. The next battle is a competition for most sadistic family. The Firefly family at the number four seed from the 2000 film The Devil's Rejects are confident they have more twisted and evil than the Jupiter clan, the number 13 seed from the 1977 film The Hills Have Eyes. According to the real-life 2019 tie-it vote, the Firefly family lost most psychotic to the Sawyer family. You can check it out. This has enraged the Firefly family, though, and the Jupiter clan are their first targets. Why not the Sawyers? Because that's not how this battle's gonna go. The Firefly family preps for battle by listening to their fight song, unsurprisingly, The Devil's Rejects by Rob Zombie. Did you expect a different song? Even Grandpa Hugo nods along. Otis reminds them that they are the devil and that they are here to do the devil's work. At the other end of the arena are the Jupiter clan, listening to their own fight song, Animals by Maroon 5. They are hungry for battle, quite literally. Their stomachs grumble loudly at the hopes that they will soon have a firefly feast. Both families exist on the margins of society. They speak to cultural fears of what we might find when we leave the safety of our suburban homes and cosmopolitan cities and wander into the wilderness that surrounds us. There's nothing subtle in either of these films about the monstrosity of these characters. Their very appearance screams that they are different from acceptable society. For example, Captain Spaulding and Pluto both are visually otherized. Perhaps that is why these two decide to attack one another first. It's unclear who makes the first move, but it's very clear who makes the last. Captain Spaulding stands over the body of Pluto, playing with the dead man's insides. As though that was the signal they were all waiting for, the battle begins in earnest. The children of Jupiter are clever, clever in an animalistic way, but they lack the more organized, systematic approach to killing that the Firefly family possesses. The last member of Jupiter's family falls. Otis kills the cannibal patriarch. The Firefly family is slightly injured, and Baby does have a deep bite wound, but they are the winners, for this most dubious prize of worst family, at least for now. 
Moving on to Creatures of the Deep, our next battle is between some sharp-teethed fish and some creepy crawlies. That's right, it's the number three seeded piranhas from the 1978 film of the same name versus the Judas breed cockroaches, the number 14 seed, from the 1997 film Mimic. In the last couple of years, we've learned to accept all sorts of environmental darkness. As the book Fear and Nature, eco-horror studies in the, in the Anthropocene begins, we live in eco-horrific times. Killer wasps, Texas snow, fires, and now the tunnels of New York are totally submerged underwater. Not really, but for the sake of this battle. This is bad news for everyone, really, except for the piranhas, who've gained a whole new watery realm. They swim along to their fight song, Blood Water by Grandson. As Christy Tidwell and Carter Souls explain in their intro to Fear in Nature, many eco-horror narratives of the last couple of decades focus on, quote, far-reaching events or processes, such as pollution, species extinction, or extreme weather. And that's what we have here. We've all heard that cockroaches can survive just about anything, and they certainly have an awesome fight song, Judas by Lady Gaga. But I don't think anyone ever anticipated a situation where they had to escape carnivorous fish. Do the cockroaches have the advantage? After all, they are certainly not like any cockroaches in real life. These are human-sized mutants. But are they really ready for the piranhas? The cockroaches hiss and scuttle. The piranhas swish and swim. And now, a word from our scientists. Horror often vilifies and exaggerates the danger of animals, and has in some cases led to the unjust killing of these animals. Yes, piranhas do have wicked sharp teeth, but they have also gotten a bad rap. And the Smithsonian Magazine's 2014 piece on piranhas says that President Teddy Roosevelt might have contributed to their bad reputations. Real-life piranhas are not monsters, but our fictitious ones engage in all sorts of monstrous mayhem. And so, by the time they are done, all that remains of the Judas breed cockroaches are a few floating antennae. The piranhas win, and they head back out to sea. Our last battle for now features the spiders in the number four seed from the 2001 film Eight-Legged Freaks versus Gilman in the number 13 seeded spot from the 1954 film The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Gilman does not really listen to music, but if he did, then his fight song would definitely be Justin Timberlake's Cry Me a River. Gilman frolics in his lagoon with his Arapaima buddies, huge, air-breathing fish with armor-like scales and teeth-covered tongues. Like Gilman, they are an oddity of nature, and their greatest predators are humans. You can actually learn more about the Arapai conservation efforts in Tom Page's 2020 CNN article, How Amazonians Saved a Terminator of the Fish World. The spiders, and yes, their fight song is to Itsy Bitsy Spider, are not native to Gilman's Amazonian region. Like many animals and plants, they were transported to the area by some humans who decided to find out what happens when they mess with the ecosystem. Do you love creature features? Then we encourage you to check out the 2021 podcast episode, Nature Creeps Back, Creature Features and the Environment. This episode was produced by ASLE, which stands for the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. The guest for this episode, Bridget Barclay, is an associate professor of Aurora University, and Christy Tidwell, an associate professor at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, talk about how the subgenre of horror films known as creature features can be used to change how we think about environmental concerns. 
We frame the world through stories and we build understandings of nature and the environment through narratives. And if you think about it, many nature documentaries can easily be the plots of horror films, with invaders or monsters attacking the unsuspecting good guys. Amy Crawford, in her 2018 piece for the Smithsonian Magazine, Why We Should Rethink How We Talk About Alien Species, suggests, however, that it's worth considering some of the language we use when we think of certain species of fauna and flora, because the metaphors we use affect how we perceive the bigger world. So, with this eco-horror framework in mind, we return to the spider versus gill man battle. Just like in the film Eight-Legged Freaks, the spiders quickly grow in size and claim more and more territory. And eventually, they are drinking from Gilman's lagoon. And yes, I learned, spiders do drink water. You can look it up. But these spiders are mutants, the result of toxic pollutions by humans. Gilman is normally a live-and-let-live sort, but in his eyes, these spiders are abominations. Over the next few days, Gilman attacks the spiders individually when they come to get water. He manages to drown several of them before the spiders, because this is horror after all, decide to team up and take down their foe. They wait until Gilman is in his grotto and then they wrap him up in their web for a tasty future snack. The spiders have won, but they are injured because some of their webmates were killed. You can find links to all of the resources, including to the fight songs, in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for coming and playing with us forever, and we look forward to you being back tomorrow for another Bleeder Board.